Hello and welcome to The Real Maxime Podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, private investor. Joining us today is Paul Kulik, CEO and co-founder of Keeper, a pioneering fintech firm. Paul's journey into entrepreneurship began during his college days. Along with a group of classmates, he ventured into a startup. While the business didn't take off as they had anticipated, Paul emerged from the experience with a profound realization. Entrepreneurship isn't the glamorous journey many envision. In truth, it's a path paved with relentless hard work, minimal accolades, and many challenges. Entrepreneurship certainly doesn't offer any free lunch. Keeper stands testament to the power of innovation in the finance sector. The company is dedicated to aiding independent contractors in identifying work-related expenses, potentially qualifying them for tax deductions. What sets Keeper apart is its fresh approach to tax filing software. It's built around personalization, intelligence, and a seamless user experience. Their unique automatic write-off identification tool enables users to connect a financial account and, within just 45 seconds, potentially see hundreds of dollars added to their tax refunds. When Paul and his co-founder, David King, enrolled in YC in 2019, their idea was in its infancy without a tangible product. By graduation, not only did they have a standout product, but they also boasted 200 paid customers, mainly sourced from Craigslist. The motivation behind Keeper stems from a pressing issue. Gig workers often overlook routine work-related expenses, from mileage to phone bills and supplies when filing taxes. On average, this oversight leads to a loss of about 21% deductions. To put it in perspective, this could mean an overpayment of around $1,550 for someone earning $25,000 annually. Before Keeper's inception, Paul had a stint at Square and Stride, where he conceptualized Stride Tax, an app dedicated to tracking mileage and expenses. On the other hand, David brought to the table his expertise from a trading firm in Chicago, where he specialized in quantitative modeling. Before Keeper came to life, the duo spent significant time brainstorming. They were driven by a desire to make a meaningful impact in the financial realm, addressing challenges faced by everyday people. Paul is a graduate of Harvard University with a degree in applied math and computer science. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hereditarily, I'm Russo-Ukrainian, but I actually grew up all over the world. I was born in Japan, I grew up in the Netherlands, and then my family moved to the United States when I was in middle school. Growing up, my folks were educated, but they weren't well off. And I think, but they did prioritize my education. So they sent me to a private school. And I think that fostered an environment of, you know, I think like a lot of immigrants, I felt culturally like an outsider, but also socioeconomically, because my folks weren't like the parents of the other school kids. And the long and short of it is that I grew up in that environment, I constant sense of needing to prove yourself and working hard. And that environment led me to Harvard, where I studied math and computer science. It led me to product management at various companies, Microsoft and Square, and eventually it led me to starting Keeper. So there's a lot to unpack here. Some of it I can relate. Actually, my great-grandmother was Ukrainian too, was born in Ukraine, and also growing up, moved around quite a bit. And I think, and I'm also an immigrant, and I think especially in a system like the, the U.S. is a formidable machine of assimilation, right? It takes people in, and if you're willing to put in the effort, and it's not easy, and the game is not entirely fair, let's be honest, but in some instances, it does lead to 
a good outcome. Like it rewards the effort. So I know you're modest and I know you've already accomplished a lot, including the, the business that you're continuing to build. But getting from what I'm curious is, was the high school experience really focused on, hey, I need to overcome some of those validation hurdles that you described. And my eyes, I'm setting very specific goals. I want to get into these schools. Was that your mindset at the time? Yeah, I think it was goal-oriented. I don't think my parents fully understood how the college system worked. So I was never, if they had known that they should send me to Harvard, then they would have absolutely made that the goal. But at the time, they only knew the more obvious things like GPA. So it was a little bit of carrot and stick. On one hand, I was being sent to a nice private school. On the other hand, I was told in no uncertain terms that if I ever got an A-, minus, I'd be taken out of that private school. So it was a combination of those two things. I think it was sort of ingrained in me that my situation should not be taken for granted and that they had sacrificed so much to get me to where I was. And so this idea that I exist to enjoy wasn't really part of my upbringing until I became older. Got it. Well, certainly we'll set the bar high, but I think creates a sense of accountability. I think too many times. Yeah. I think generationally, I think there's a lot to take for granted, right? Here in this country, which is a great country, it has its flaws, but it's a great country and a great system. And I think from what you're telling me, it sounds like the whole journey was one where nothing was taken for granted. And so you, you develop probably a, a high sense of not only work ethic, but accountability. Well, you've obviously gravitated towards building a business in a fairly rigorous science and world, which is the intersection of technology and accounting and finances. What were the early topics that really piqued your interest? I mean, I know you had to perform, right, across sectionally across all disciplines to get to where you eventually went to college. But what were the things that you liked the most at the time? Yeah. Um, so my parents are both, one is a physicist and the other is a chemist. And maybe the one very kind of specific direction that they gave me was not to go into academia. They grew up in the Soviet Union. They, for them, America was the land of blue jeans and capitalism. And that was amazing. That was wonderful. And they wanted to live vicariously through that in my life, frankly, which meant that they were just excited for me to be a businessman, you know, whatever that meant at the time. I think that because they knew so little about that world, they gave me a lot of space and freedom to figure out what that means. But I think that's maybe where the attraction to startups and entrepreneurship came from in my life. Yeah. And probably also, I'd say probably be in control of your own destiny, right? There's a direct yeah. correlation between how much you put in it. I mean, again, the game is not entirely fair, right? It takes a lot of luck, takes a lot of things to make it happen, but at least you're in control of your destiny. You're not a name on a spreadsheet, right? Yeah, exactly. I think that was a big part. So, and whilst at Harvard, were there new areas that, and by the way, whilst at Harvard, did you still feel the pressure to perform? Because I know some folks who eventually get to, to that goal and they say, okay, I went to Harvard. I'll always have that on my resume. I don't necessarily need to have a 4.0 GPA. What was your mindset at the time? Yeah. So I think that when I left my parents' home, they stopped. I was always fiercely independent because whenever they could oversee a part of my life, then it was, I knew that that was going to mean that expectations were really going to be really high. And so I did a lot of work to shield myself at the time from the scrutiny of my folks. 
And so I didn't tell them what grades I got. And I don't think they knew enough to really ask at the time. So it was just don't ask, don't tell. And I knew I didn't want to go into academia and I wanted to be to build businesses. And so I was, you know, really, I like the joke that after freshman year, I was over it. Like I was just waiting to leave. I started one business in college. I got okay grades, but it was never, that was never the objective. I always was just excited for the next thing for what happened after that. Yeah, no, I can relate with that. I remember college fondly, but I was very excited to go into the real world and I couldn't wait to start working. I just had this innate desire to just go out there. And on some level, you know, it's interesting because I did pick up a lot of really interesting hard skills and studied many very interesting topics. But the mindset at the time was one that was really yearning empirical exposure more so than anything else. And so I can relate to that. So what was your intended path? So you said you started a business whilst in college and that lead to what kind of outcome did that lead to? And then in terms of recruiting and the types of jobs you looked at, what were you looking at at the time? Yeah. So this is, I think we talked at the beginning about how a little bit of that pressure in your childhood is actually quite helpful. I think the business I built in college was not a great business. It was a consumer. We basically, it was called Ofero. We sold condoms and the model was BOGO. So buy one, get one. And the idea was for every condom you buy, we donate one to people in need. And it was just, it's really hard to build that kind of business, let alone for my co-founders were both computer science majors, just like me. And so we were just not the people to go and build this. And I think the guardrails of the background that I came from made it pretty obvious that I couldn't that I didn't, I shouldn't be knocking my head against that wall continuously. I needed to go get, go make actual money. I needed to pay back student loans. And so that's, it felt like a non-decision for me to go. And initially I worked at Microsoft. It was, they paid me more money than I ever thought that I could earn. And that was very liberating and freeing. And I stayed in that corporate world for about five years until that tug of entrepreneurship brought me back. So you've worked at at some very impressive companies, right? And there's obviously, again, you're probably looking at and glossing over what was probably a, a set of formative years. What really brought, do you think that the space you're in today is a result of a conscious progression or did you find yourself at companies that really formed your thinking and expertise in a specific area, which then led you to identify pain points that you were then able to translate into a business plan? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a combination of both, of course, but I can look back and tell a, a clean narrative arc how I went from big company to smaller company to smaller company to my own company. And that's very satisfying and simple to explain. But I think the reality is I didn't, like all of us at some point in our careers, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And I got very lucky to get to see what I consider some of the best company builders and operators up close early in my career. I think Square at the time when I joined was about 600 people. It was just full of talent. I mean, the caliber of talent at that company was mind-boggling. And they had such good practices set up. They had taken so much of the ex-Google, ex-Facebook, that lifeblood of ex-Twitter, of the mistakes that they made in those past experiences. And they did a lot to very intentionally set up a good culture. And I would say that first formative experience really dictates a lot of how I view effective 
corporate building, culture building. I actually think that's, I hate to generalize here, but that's something I often look at when I interview candidates as well is oftentimes that first experience that you have, if you were an iBanker as your first job, then you just have certain expectations that are set by that first job. And I feel very fortunate that that mine was just an excellent company with a lot of transparency and, and the things that I value today. Yeah, no, I that's why I asked the question because there are logos and there are better logos than others. And it's really not about the logos. It's about the ethos, but also the science that it takes internally to build great businesses, right? And we know how hard it is to scale to the level of a square, of a stride. Exactly. And so I'm wondering, this will lead us into you starting your own business and how you did it and how you're continuing to do it. But what are the main tenets that you observed at those companies? So you refer to the trial and error and the formative experiences of founders and managers and executives having worked at prior large, very established tech companies that kind of set the standard, right? When you think about human capital management at Google, Laszlo Buck, like all this science that was developed empirically, trial and error, but then perfected at these very almost like this very scientific approach right to running businesses you mentioned the word transparency were there any other aspects that you observed that you hold very dear and have worked hard to implement at your company yeah a lot of it is tactical a lot of it is okay here's how to avoid building a giant data warehousing team that becomes unwieldy and and here's how to make sure that you squash company politics by making sure that every meeting has notes that are shared with everyone across the company and no one ever feels like things are happening behind closed doors. Those are, I would not discount those tactical learnings. I think that you get a head start in building your own business if you've seen someone else at series A, B, C, D, E struggle with the challenges that come at those stages. I think you have this incredible foresight that is very valuable. But I think another big part of it is more, it's a little uh, subtler. And that part of it is that these were startups. I mentioned Square, I mentioned Amplitude, which is a public company now, Stride, that saw themselves, sure, they were startups, but they behaved like absolute top caliber, we are better than everyone else kind of businesses. In the recruiting, in the way they took their, managed their decision-making, in the caliber of communication, the bar was so high. And I think experiencing a really high bar early in your career is really very valuable because it gives you the confidence when you're a founder to also set an incredibly high bar. I mean, in theory, you have no right to do that, right? You have no business, you have no revenue. Like, why should someone excellent who has a 600K offer from Google join you early stage? You need to have that, that slight level of maniacal bar setting where you can convince them that actually they should quit that and they should join you. And that just because you're four people in a room doesn't mean that you aren't going to build something incredible and world-changing. And I think it's a lot harder to truly believe that, to method act that confidence if you haven't seen other people do it. And so I think a big part of it beyond just the tactical processes was seeing, okay, Square did this and I saw them early days and I saw them later on and I Square I hadn't seen super early, but then I went on to join companies that I saw very, very early on and some of the challenges they had. So I think that's a very big part of it. It's just building up your confidence because you're seeing other people who have done it. Yeah, no, absolutely. 
were there any notable setbacks in your own progression before starting the business that you feel like helped you grow and learn? Before starting the business. So look, I was the stereotype of ambitious and overly, I would say, egocentric early career employee. So I, for better or worse, I think a lot of us go through this ego journey where early on in my career, I was like, okay, I get it. You know, one year and I was like, I get it. I get corporate. I'm very good at this. I should be promoted right now. And I should be managing a team. And also these this other team should be listening to what I say. And so I had all these ideas about like, I just thought I was very good at the job. And naturally it just, you know, that may or may not be true, but if a company just took people at their word and promoted people like that, they would very much, very often run into, a lot of issues would ensue. And so the companies didn't show that they valued me as much as I thought they should. And so that led me to a good outcome. I would say in many ways that was very naive and childish of me, but it led me to an outcome where I wanted, I went to a smaller business where they did give me that level of responsibility and P&L ownership and so forth, instead of choosing to just stay at the bigger company and climb the ladder slowly. No, I mean, I find a lot of self-awareness in some of your statements. You're an emphasis on looking through those lenses of understanding your own progression and being very aware. Do you think that was always inherent or something that you developed over time? That's retrospect. You know, I think that you see it. What's the expression? When you have a kid, that's where you understand your own parents for the first time. I think the same is true for when you start hiring early career talented overperformers, you start seeing yourself in them and you're like, ah, I understand now what's happening. I understand why my manager five years ago treated me that way. So I don't know. I don't think, I think it's something, it's a journey that we're all on. And I find it very interesting to think back on, but it, it certainly wasn't something that was innate at the time. Got it. So I want to talk about the business and how we got started, because that's really exciting. So walk me through what led you to actually having not only the courage, but then the ambition to start something and walk me through the initial genesis, right? There's a gestation phase. Did you have a set of co-founders? Were you alone and like dreaming that up and putting it together? And also like, let's jump into the thesis. What was the initial thesis and how has it changed really from that point? Yeah. So the inception of Keeper came from a business called Stride where this is the ego journey that I was talking about, where I was for the first time put in charge of a PL, and I essentially was running a business within a larger business. And the business I was running was trying to solve the same problem that we solve at Keeper today, which is helping individual consumers claim tax-deductible business expenses, which they would otherwise miss. And I found myself loving the impact and the freedom. And I would walk home from work and I would tears would come into my eyes as I was thinking about how we were going to crush QuickBooks. <laughs> that was the mentality I was in. I, it was so it was so invigorating. And that was the moment where I knew, okay, this I need to do this for the rest of my life. This is what I love to do. And of course, when you're an entrepreneur, you're building, you are building within another person's rules. And there was the ceiling as to how far the business was willing to invest in my product and how many risks they were willing to take. You know, my perspective at the time is that the whole business should pivot around the product that I was building because it was so successful. But of course, in retrospect, I can see why they chose not to do that. But so this is the situation I was in. I was feeling very, we had a lot of success with that business. It's called Stride Tax. 
we grew that from inception to about 30,000 weekly active users. And at one point, I became quite frustrated. I thought this sub business is doing so well, we need to spin it out. But I wasn't being allowed to do that. So I quit. And I quit in kind of classic, dramatic, early career fashion. <laughs> I'm not proud to admit this, but I'll tell you the story. I was about two and a half years in, I quit and was given a microphone at an all hands. So basically, my job at that point was to say, oh, you know, I, I really appreciate everyone and I won't forget you and let's stay in touch and all these things. Instead of that, I told them that I'm quitting to start a new business and it's, I'm going to make a massive, I'm going to make an investment in this tax space and I'm going to make a, build a massive business and just you watch. <laughs> and I think they were very credit to Noah, the, the foundry. I think he was very accommodating to that. And I think there's lots of space in the sea and he didn't take it personally. But I went up there with a microphone and basically made this promise that I couldn't keep. I had no real plan. I had no co-founder. I barely had an idea. At the time, I was considering a couple of ideas and I had no savings. Like I was living in San Francisco on early career salary. I barely had anything. And so what happened instead of all those big claims I made, instead of that, I spent two months incredibly frustrated, banging my head against the wall, trying to start a business from trying to go from zero to 60 on a gravel road and eventually went back. I would say gained a lot of humility and then joined another startup. That was essentially my journey in, in a nutshell the first time I tried to start Keeper. And eventually you did go back to wanting to start Keeper. So first of all, what I'm trying to understand is what was different when we were trying to spin the wheels into gravel at the time? Was it that you couldn't convince people to give you the resources? Was it that you were having trouble formulating the thesis or finding teammates? Like, what were the challenges at the time that let you... Now, I understand the financial constraints, right? I mean, it's... And again, to listeners, it's very important to understand this. Starting a business is incredibly risky. It's very, very hard. And it's, on some level, very financially irresponsible. And... I think people need to know that. So, which means that, and I always tell founders when I talk to them, when you're going to go and start a business, if there's one person who really needs to do the due diligence and the hard work on the business, on the business model, on the technology, everything, every single aspect, it's you. Because the investor who's going to cut a check, they still have their time. They parted with money, but they still have their time. On the other hand, are going to commit your life to this project. So I'm wondering, like, from your perspective, what didn't click at that juncture that led you, aside from probably a, just a financial runway, to go back and, and work at Amplitude? Yeah, so I think it was just the classic. It was the ego-driven, you need a head start. You need to basically, it's like that honeymoon phase. And I just for just didn't do the legwork. I just didn't do the preparation, as you say. I What I did was I first went around to everyone I had ever basically worked with and liked, and I pitched them hey, I'm going to start a company and you should be my co-founder and you should quit your job. And I know you just had a kid, but this is more important. <laughs> and ultimately I received a lot of, oh, I'd love to work with you, but I can't do this full time or not right now, or sounds really interesting, but what about this? And I think it, that combined with the financial pressure of every month that goes by, my bank account gets closer to zero, made me realize that I needed to prepare more. and. 
The difference between the second time, which was about a year later, and the first time is that I did the work, right? I spent, like, I joined Amplitude and it's a great business, but I told my, I made a commitment to myself that rather than working the kind of hours that I worked at previous companies, I would work nine to five. And at the end of that nine to five, I would work between five and nine on the business, on my business. And that's what I did for a year. And the first six months were grueling and they, I was alone and I needed to keep myself accountable to, to my own targets and goals, which is incredibly difficult to do. And then six months in, serendipitously, I crossed paths with a former friend and someone I respected who had decided that their time was also now to start a business. And that became my co-founder, David. And we spent another six months after that, or maybe even eight months, nine months, we spent that time iterating on maybe four or five different directions for various businesses before we ultimately saw some traction with what became Keeper. And so it, it was a long journey between the, well, I'm going to go do this statement and quitting my job, quitting your job is easy, between that and actually having something worth worth devoting my life to. No, I, and I think I happen to be biased. I've done co-founding and I've done solopreneur or solo GP on the hedge fund side. And I have to say, I'm very biased towards doing it as a team. I know some very, very successful entrepreneurs that are one-person show. And I think it takes a very unique mindset and unique abilities to do that. I think the journey is, I personally would likely be reluctant to invest with a solo founder for that reason. And that might be a bias because some outcomes are actually really, really good. It is my own bias to think that given the journey that one embarks on, that requires at every step of the game, the ability to cross-reference, cross-check. And also, it really works. And I wanted to ask you about your, your two types of approaches in business and personalities. It really works when you have this portfolio approach of balancing it out. Because otherwise, you find yourself in an echo chamber, or you have someone just rubber stamping your decisions, and that's not healthy either, right? You need support, but you also need critical thinking. So what are your thoughts on that and on how that, it seems like, really bootstrapped the effort and probably injected a lot of motivation for you, right? That's right. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with what you said. Like, I can only really speak for myself, but I know that I am not strong enough to carry that weight on my own shoulders for too long. I needed to, just the feeling of, it's as simple as saying, I need someone that I can say, I'm going to do this. This week, I'm going to do these four things. And then I need that person to be able to say at the end of that week, be like, okay, I did these four things. You know, it's as simple as that. I need someone who I feel accountable to and who's an equal to me and power to the people who can do it alone. But I certainly wasn't one of them. So David and I, I would say we were both going back to this ego journeys thing. I think we did end up being really great personality fits for co-founders. I'm the CEO. David is the COO. He's much more worried about the sort of implementation and the realistic side of things. I'm much more worried about the, the longer term vision and the, and the product side of things. And I think that's a great fit. But how do I put this? Like, I think all of us, when we early on in our startup journeys, have a lot of ego to burn through, if you will. And 
I think that was also true for David. I think early on, he was like, yeah, I, I'll be the CEO. And I have these, I come from, he comes from hedge funds and trading. So he was like, I have all these ideas that I want to try. And I think that's fair. And I think that what we did at that stage is rather than trying to convince him that like, no, no, do my idea. I was like, great, let's give it a shot. And that's what a lot of that nine months was spent on is let's like actually experience what building this business will be like. Let's get out of the business plan, Google document and talking to customers and thinking through the challenges and actually coding. And it was through that experience that I think David came around to, okay, like I get it. CEO is like all sales and it's a hard job and I would love for you to do it. That was an arc that I think we came to organically. And also, by the way, the arc of, hey, let's build the business that I think that we ended up building, which was an area that we actually knew a lot about. And it was the classic grass is greener for uh, when you don't understand an industry, you think that you jump in and build a great business, but then you end up coming around to, okay, let's, let me just focus on the thing I know. And so that was a journey that David and I went through, but it wasn't like right out of the gate, David was, oh, I'll absolutely play second fiddle and or be, let you be a CEO and happily have that be the arrangement. I think it required us working together and experiencing the reality of how this would work. That's a, a very healthy process. It sounds like it worked out to set a foundation for, because once that part, so I always say you need to build an organization around functions and not people. And, but ultimately, this is an example of this, right? It's ultimately, you gave yourselves the time to identify out of those main initial boxes that are core function to the business. Like you need a CEO, you need someone to help you build and run the operations, and there might be a different mindset. And then figure out who of the founders are natural fits for those functions, as opposed to trying to build the organization around one person. I mean, look, some people are able to grow, right? One of the things you see very obvious in the Coinbase documentary about Brian Armstrong is, well, eventually Fred, his co-founder, left because he saw that he was never going to be CEO. But Brian makes no mystery in a documentary that he was not naturally gifted to be a CEO. Like he didn't have, but he does apply a lot of rigorous, not only thinking, but also given the right resources, really had people help train him to become an effective and good CEO, which he's he's in that rare category of CEOs who's actually grown you know, throughout the stages and is still, and look at the turnaround that company in, in the last year. Just again, an, an example of how it's very rare for that to happen. It's better to do it the way you did it, where eventually someone falls into the right spot, but it also requires time. So it required that you had gelling period where you got to know each other in a different context. So tell me about, if you were to summarize it for, let's say me, like let's say you met me for the first time and you're initially, not that you are right now, but you're pitching this, right? To hire someone, to convince someone to help you out. What is in terms of like the core purpose? What is the main problem? And then the solution that you're trying to advise. And then what I'm also curious is, why did you think, you've mentioned the word ego many times, and I commend you for this on the self-awareness front. But aside from that, why did you think it was the right time to do it? Yeah, so look, Keeper is the world's first AI-based tax filing software. The world of taxes, especially US taxes, is incredibly complex. There are so many types of credits and deductions and loopholes that for folks who can't afford a great accountant, someone who's, let's say, thousand, two thousand bucks, 
there are just so many ways in which they are leaving money on the table. And this was the initial inspiration for Keeper, is that there was this gap between the world of human, of white glove services, and what software at the time could deliver, right? Rules-based software, what you get from a TurboTax, can only do so much, right? It's sort of a glorified form-filling experience. It can't really give you strategic tax advice. It can't really personalize the experience. And we saw this opportunity where there was this massive need, but there was also a technological window of opportunity where software was getting smarter, fast. We started the business in 2018, 2019. So AI was certainly a thing, but I would say that window has even increased further with the late more recent developments. But we saw this window where there was an opportunity to actually build software smart enough to combine the benefits of that what you get from a human tax preparer with the convenience and scale and accessibility of software. And that's what Keeper is. That's, that's a very compelling message. And I think the ability to crystallize and to communicate this in a way that can be comprehended and understood by your audience, I think is critical. Did you have any, you said you didn't have much in the form of savings at the time. How did you go about resourcing that initial phase and starting to work on things? Yeah. So early on, it was, I just had a job. I just, I clocked out at five and then I would go to a, there was a cafe that I would just, I would buy a single, like a snack basically and, a, and some water. And then I would just work from till 9 p.m. every day. So that was the early, early phase. By the time that we were done with that phase, we had real, we were charging people money. It wasn't a lot of money, but we had, the business started out in a little bit of a different place than it is today. It started out with what we call automatic write-off detection. So the service was that you would link your bank account and we would identify tax deductions among your purchases and let you know about them. And then at the end of the year, you would get a report that you could go plug into a tax filing software or give to your accountant. That was the initial version of the product. But we right away, we were charging customers for it. We charged them 10 bucks a month. And some people balked at that because we didn't even have, really have a website. We didn't have an app. We would just text you. Every day we would text you and you would go buy something and we would literally look at your purchases that day and say, okay, these two are probably tax deductible and this one I'm not sure about. So I'm going to ask. There was no user interface, but right away we were charging customers because we needed to make sure that this was fine, you know, that this wasn't just people using it because why not? We wanted to make sure that they actually found value. And one great way to do that is to make a cost. So whilst you're working at Amplitude, in the evenings you work, first period you work by yourself, then you start partnering up. And at that time, you guys are building a product and already first testing product market fit for that initial offering. Yeah. By the time that we actually, that I actually quit Amplitude, of course, you know, we got lucky and got straight into YC from there. We had no period between the company and funding. But by the time that that transition happened, we already had about 100 paying customer subscribers at 10 bucks a month. It's obviously not going to pay the rent, but it was enough to know that, okay, we can make money here. And let's just say it wasn't just an idea. <laughs> I think I would have been too scared to jump without some validation. And how did you go about finding those 100 users? Good old Craigslist. When in doubt, I think that people will do incredible things. If you're with a little bit of charisma and a quick call, people would straight off of Craigslist connect their bank accounts to a website that just was blank with a button in the middle that said, connect your bank account. And we explained to them that we were what we were going to do with that data. And 
<laughs> we didn't go into too many details about who we were or wh- what the service was, but they there was enough of a problem where they we sold them on this story about how, which is true, which is that, hey, listen, you drive for Uber, and that means that you are eligible for tons of write-offs that you're probably not tracking right now. Your water bottles, your Spotify, your gas insurance, and it's a huge pain to track them. We're going to help you add $1,200 to your refund if you just let us do this thing. And they bought the story and they linked their bank account and we did the thing we said we were going to do. But it was by no means are we running ads or doing anything scalable. We would post on Craigslist. At one point, we would post, we had a bot that would post on Craigslist. And that's how we got our first, I don't know, 400 paying users. Yeah, it was very manual. So you get into YC, I'm assuming they're excited, right? I mean, it's very competitive to get in there, but that two guys with your pedigree, sounds like you had a really, really good case. You get into YC. Tell us about your experience there and just briefly, like how that allows you to start converting into really ramping up the business. Yeah. (laughs) So YC was very different than I expected. And I think at the time I was not happy with with the experience. I had drank the Kool-Aid of build something users want, the classic YC line. And I thought that they were going to, it's going to be surrounded by product people and exciting ways to change the world and technology. And I think what YC is really is a kick in the butt to go raise a seed round. That's what YC actually is. It's a whatever, 12 week build up to go raise your seed round. And I think that a lot of founders experience this, like me, where you think that that's not what you need. You think that the problem is that, oh, I I haven't found product market fit, and do people even like this? But the reality is, what you really need is the way to prove that is actually to fly the plane while you're trying to like build the plane. And so that experience of getting a kick in the butt and just the only metric that matters at YC is revenue and whether you increased it, what percent you increased it week over week. And that attitude was not natural, but it is did turn out to be the right attitude because it allowed us to raise a seed round and it allowed us to end up building towards that vision. If we had tried to build the whole, to build to the point where we were satisfied with the product, we would never have gotten anything. We would never have proven anything to ourselves. The reality is, is you're trying to de-risk both the market and the product side of the business. And like a lot of other founders, I think I had this propensity towards focusing on the product. And so that was very important. So I'm very grateful to YC today. At the time, I was quite frustrated. I felt like they were just churning out. Just, okay, like, doesn't matter what your product is. Who cares? Just fly, fly, cheat, and steal. Do whatever you need to do to get revenue up. And I felt like that was on my high horse in my ivory tower. I was like, oh, but that's not how you build something people love. But I think the reality is you need money to build something people love. It doesn't happen overnight. And the way to get money is to follow those steps. Yeah, makes sense. So today... Who are your target customers and markets? Like, what are the main dependencies and counterparties? I always think of the world as like stakeholders, right? In order to succeed, you need as many arrows pointing in the same direction. In other words, all the stakeholders being aligned. And on some level, you need bigger guys or gals in the marketplace to want you to succeed. Is that the case? Interesting. I actually am not sure where you're headed with that line of thought. We have a very simple business. We just sell directly to consumers. Like we create value for individuals that need to file their tax return and they pay us for that value. So we don't, I would say that was one of the core things I've wanted that David and I both wanted when we started the business. We didn't want to build enterprise. 
there's a lot of good reasons to build enterprise, but we like building consumer. We like building without having that intermediary enterprise stakeholder who isn't actually the end user kind of mucking up the value cycle. And so, yeah, so that's our business. Do you, so what I meant really is even if you are in a D2C configuration, at some point you're, well, if you're creating something entirely new, but that's that's incredibly rare, right? You're always going to be stepping on someone else's toes, right? And And usually that's an incumbent. Can you talk to us a little bit about that dynamic and what do you think of it long term? Yeah, I understand. So for our business specifically, the one of the major realizations that we had early on, and I had a head start on this because I had built another similar business before that when I was an entrepreneur, is that you know these people who are technically, there's 60 million people in the United States who have what is technically business income, but the majority of them don't they don't do business accounting. They would never in a million years do business accounting because they happen to sell stuff on Etsy on the side, right? They don't think of themselves as business owners. They don't want to do P&L, business accounting, whatever, accrual. So our core insight was instead of trying to sell to the people who wanted business accounting software, like every other app out there, we would sell to the people who would don't think about themselves that way. We would sell to people who don't care about business accounting for the sake of business accounting, but they care about getting a bigger refund. and that was our positioning from the start. And so we were always in this world where obviously the thing to do, you're a legitimate business owner, like, God bless you, go use QuickBooks. Like, please don't use us. Like, that's not, they have a 30 year head start on all the features you need as a business owner. So, so please. But for people, what we would say, but that's not who we're competing with. We're competing with apathy. We're competing with do nothing. We're competing with, you didn't track anything and you end up overpaying on your taxes. And that's a much easier competitor than than an existing incumbent. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. And I think there are different philosophies and also comfort levels with the discipline of actually dressing a market in a specific way. What do you think? So obviously, when we, we do get into a retrenchment period like we're going through right now, right? I mean, and this is a generalization, but as we know, right, the macro environment is conducive to less capital flowing. The hurdle rate and is much higher in terms of deploying and investing capital. And in those phases, and I remember vividly after the first internet bubble, and that's a long time ago, there was a retrenchment towards B2B as a safer and less fickle wallet, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And a lot of companies were either getting funded going into B2B or pivoting into B2B. And there's this notion that the consumer is a much more exciting endeavor in terms of its potential scalability. But the difficulty is knowing when that hockey stick is going to kick off, right? And that's what's incredibly difficult. So I'm curious as to where your conviction, but also your expertise comes from in terms of having that level of confidence that you understand the, your consumer, you understand how to build that funnel and how to execute on that funnel? Yeah, I love consumer. I, boy, I mean, you're absolutely right. I think the number of investors we've talked to who are like halfway through the call, they're like, oh, wait, we only invest in B2B. That number, of, that went maybe from 30% to like 50% of investors after the this retrenchment, as you put it. I think it is harder to build 
a $100 billion consumer business. Well, I think it's hard to build that regardless, but I think it's especially hard to kind of show milestones to getting there as a B2C business because consumers are, they're fickle and they churn more and all these other reasons. But what I love about it is that it's, it's math. It's pure math. You don't, the way that we grow is a formula. It's conversion rate through onboarding times price times retention integral over the next five years. And the, on the other side of that equation is the cost of acquisition. And there's something really beautiful about the fact that you're dealing with such scale means that when you crack it, it really, I mean, there's a lot, there's 60 million people out there who need this product. It's not like I have, I've already got the three big players in the space and I just need to maintain relationships with my enterprise salespeople. Like there's the ceiling is so high. And so that's what I love about consumer. It feels a lot more, in some ways, a lot more predictable and exciting. I also love the, as I mentioned, the alignment of incentives. Like we don't, what I saw a lot of back when I was at Square, or excuse me, at Amplitude is as you start to sell to bigger and bigger companies, those companies just, the, the person you're selling to is different than the person who's using it. And all of a sudden you're sort of building for the person who's buying it, but not the person who's using it. And then you get all these misaligned incentives. So anyway, I love the simplicity of consumer, but I think you're absolutely right that it's gotten a bad rap, especially in this retrenchment. I just think it takes a very, very good direct-to-consumer folks. And to be honest, your co-founder's background is in that field. You're also heavily skilled in math. Personally, I see a lot of similarities between the actual engineering of online direct-to-consumer marketing and conversion into revenue, an analogy with trading and quantitative trading. Because essentially, there are a lot of similarities in terms of your ability eventually to build those conditional expectation models where subject to a given information set that you are going to refine over time, you can actually really reduce the variance around that forecast, right? So, and of course, it's an ever moving picture. It's not something that's very static, right? Just like markets, because consumers are fickle, because new offerings, and you're also, again, there's a reflexive nature in the fact that as you start entering a market, you're affecting the very same data set that you're trying to build predictions over. And so that to me is very appealing. I always, not that I personally have done a lot of work in that field, but I see a lot of similarities with what I've done on the quantitative trading side of things. So do you have a, I mean, obviously you do, right? I mean, can you give us a sense of along the dimensions of diversification, growth, predictability, retention, like how is the business doing right now? Do you feel like you're heavily concentrated with certain types of consumers that fit a very specific type or because ultimately, right, when another analogy with finance is a subscription revenue model is really akin to a fixed income portfolio, right? And what you're trying to do is assemble a highly diversified portfolio cross-sectionally, also in terms of renewal schedules and, and essentially like duration, right? And you're also trying to mitigate credit risk, which is the equivalent is churn, right? So talk to us a little bit along those dimensions. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about first mindset, market mindset, right? So 2021, we raised our Series A. So we raised about $15 million. And I think that in some ways, that shaped the way that we built the business. When you have $15 million to spend in your so early stage, you're just incentivized to put that into growth. And, and that's what we did. And so the initial, it was 
combination of that pressure, the only thing the market cared about was growth and not profitability, as well as the fact that we we were still a very young company. We were four people at the time. And so there's only so much product quality that we could actually deliver. That combination caused us to sell to a kind of customer that we have since learned is actually not advantageous for the business. So we sold to what you might call gig workers. This is the equivalent of having high-risk loan recipients, right? The gig workers just, for that audience, like they switch jobs a lot. Sometimes they have 1099 jobs, sometimes they don't. For them, $192 a year is a lot of money. And so the, every year they were making a very active decision whether or not they were going to renew. And so we would see a lot of churn from that base. But of course, we had to start there because the more mature and I would say like higher LTV customer base wasn't ready to trust the new tax filer on the block. We didn't have the kind of functionality that would put them at ease. And so we had to start somewhere and, and gig workers were the right place to start. Since then, we have we've really taken the time during this entrenchment to give ourselves the space to build the right thing for the future, which is to refocus on higher LTV customer base. So we call these people moonlighters. These are people who have W-2 income. They have some 1099 on the side. They retain about twice as well as gig workers. They were uniquely positioned to sell to them. But for reasons of just like product velocity, we couldn't yet support them because they also have a lot more complexity. They, they have mortgages. They have rental properties. They have retirement liquidation. They have all these things that we hadn't had time to build yet. And so the last two years for us have been a refocus on that customer base. And that's what has allowed us to get to where we are today. We're on track to get to over 10 million ARR and cash flow positive by the end of this tax year. It's been that realization that not all revenue is created equal and we need to build for the, the five-year horizon, not, not the one year. What are your thoughts on, you're hitting on a point that I care about a lot as an investor, which is the nature of the venture model is one that forces you to optimize along some dimensions that may result in an adverse outcome that's detrimental to the long-term trajectory of the business. So as you've now gone through building the business, and again, congratulations on reaching those milestones, which are, again, it's very rare even to get to this point. What are your thoughts as you look back at what you thought initially when four people in a room you hit it, right? You just raise a series A. It's not a small round. You've got a lot of money that hits the bank account. You see the zeros on the bank account, then starts the journey. You're starting to optimize. Looking back, what do you think of that process and that journey? Oh man, what a good question. So I've been thinking about this a lot because the venture industry is set up in a way that ostensibly its goal is to buy early stakes in businesses and businesses that will eventually be worth $100 billion, right? That's the if you can simplify it, that's sort of goal. But there's a very particular formula that's been developed, right? It's the 3x, 3x, 2x, 2x, 2x IPO model, where there's this a rate, that growth that is expected. And those are considered the kind of blue ribbon benchmarks that every business is supposed to, is supposed to follow. But it's hard to imagine a world in which all the businesses that are going to eventually become massive $100 billion businesses follow that exact growth trajectory, right? Why would that be the case? That doesn't make any sense. It makes sense, I think, for some, like if you're a sales-based business, there's ways that you can perhaps do that early 3x, 3x. But I think our business in particular, I've actually always thought about it as a little bit different. I see it as a giant product moat that we have to cross. 
And everything before that is market validation. All the growth we do before that is just market validation. It's just figuring out the right formulas to make the engine tick. And then there's a point where I think this is a little bit more akin to consumer businesses where the formula works. And now's the time to get the actual gasoline. It's a little bit less of a, a linear or rather consistent exponential function. It's a little bit of a before and after. And so I felt in many ways like our business may not actually follow the traditional venture growth rate model. But in some ways, that's actually a good thing because that's also the moat and that's also the reason it's going to be hard to copy. Yeah. And because also you've certainly acquired very, very strong competitive advantage through those iterations of figuring out that moat and making it all the more defensible by not being pressed into that fast growth trajectory. In other words, it takes patience to figure out exactly what the secret sauce is, and which is what you're looking to figure out on a daily basis. What do you feel are the key goals for you to accomplish over the next couple of years? Like what's at the forefront? And what would you like to look back, let's say at this conversation and see having accomplished by then? Yeah. The number one thing in the business for us is retention. We're using this retrenchment in the market to, I think if we hadn't had this retrenchment, we may very well have just been focused on ARR growth as our top level metric. And I think that would have eventually led us to a bad place. But with the retrenchment, we've had the space to say, we're in a good position. We can go raise a B, but the but at some point the piper is going to come knocking, and the way to like the real step function change comes from when you can bring retention up to that 70-80% mark. Today we're at, at about 50. And that's the real we believe that that's very much achievable. It just takes, you know the right kind of strategy and the right kind of approach. And so that's the number one thing I would say is most important to the business. You know, when you look at a business like TurboTax that has granted a 30-year head start, they have decades, the customers that have been going to them for decades. And that's why Intuit is a $200 billion business because they've built out, they've had the time and they've had the uh, foresight to build out that kind of ecosystem rather than focusing on, I would say, forced short-term ARR targets. And so in the meantime, even if we're growing, let's say, you know, this year we're on track to grow 50%, it's, that's not really the, I would like for in two years to be at a point where that formula clicked, as opposed to having a specific ARR target in mind. That's a very worthy goal. And judging by our conversation, I think you guys are probably plugging away at it daily. And I have full confidence you'll hit that milestone. Paul, it's been a pleasure chatting today. I've learned a lot about you and your journey and the business you've built. I commend you again on reaching the milestones that very, very few people ever achieve. So it sounds like you're in a great trajectory and there's a lot of wisdom that's come from this period of retrenchment as I've referred to. And I think you're going to come out a lot stronger from it. So thank you for your time again today. Thanks, Maxine. This has been a pleasure. Great questions. Really fun. Thank you. Awesome. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, not investment advice.